good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary space this morning. And for those of you that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at Home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, your back porch, wherever you happen to be. Uh, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here and my joy to open up God's word with you all uh, this morning as we are getting near the end of this series that we've been in for the better part of 2021 called Come and See. It's this journey through the Gospel of John, the book of John, what really is this biography of the life of Jesus. And our hope and prayer in this is that we would, if you're new to Christianity, if you're exploring this, that that you would heed that invitation. Just just come and and check out who Jesus is, that you would come and then you would see and you begin to understand and ask questions and all of that. And if you're somebody that's been a Christian for maybe as long as you can remember, that you too would also come and you would see and you would experience who Christ is, that you would have a profound encounter with him, uh, that you would begin to see him in in a new light and how he impacts your life, like right here, right now. And so over the last couple weeks, uh, we have been in a portion of the book of John that's called the Farewell Discourse. And so some of the final teachings of of Jesus and the hours before he's getting ready to go to the cross, uh, we looked at for two weeks, the last two weeks, the high priestly prayer in John 17, what Jesus is praying, not only for his disciples a couple thousand years ago, but looking into the future and peering ahead and praying for you, that he was actively praying for you and me before he went to the cross. And now we make our way into this portion of the book of John, which begins with the passion narratives where we are going to look specifically at Jesus, how he is arrested, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's put on trial uh, as we get into his death on the cross. And typically maybe in a church calendar, right? We might be dealing with that more in the springtime as we get closer to Easter. We're in Holy Week and Good Friday. But this is a, a great opportunity that we have to just soak in these particular passages over the next few weeks, praying that we would have a renewed understanding of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so I want to invite you, we're going to be making our way through John chapter 18, the verse, first 27 verses. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. I want you to have the, God's word in front of you. You don't need to hear my thoughts, opinions, any of that. Like, we need to hear from God himself, and so I would encourage you. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible, you also can get your phone out and go to cplife.church, and you will see something there that says sermon notes. And you can click that, and the text will be there, as well as space to take notes, Things that I put up on the slides this morning, you also have, um, that'll all be included there. So let me go ahead and read this, John 18, 1 to 27. Uh, By way of warning to those of you that are following along in the notes, uh, you will see, it'll probably become fairly evident early on. Uh, I'm going to spend the bulk of time in the first 11 verses. So for those of you that you're starting to get nervous and you're like, dude, he's still got like two more sections to go. Like, are we ever going to get out of here? People are going to beat us to lunch. Like, I want to be first in line. Just brief. It'll be okay. Um, But just so you know, we're spending a little bit more time in the first 11 verses. There's so many layers in that. And then as we get into the subsequent week, some of these themes we'll be revisiting as well. But John 18, 1 to 27, let me read this full text and we'll make our way back through it. It says this, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, "'Who is it that you're seeking?' Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. 
And Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. And when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, well, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant, and he cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And at that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Verse 12, then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish officials arrived, arrested Jesus, and they tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. And that disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, he went out, spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. And now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. Verse 19, then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is, that, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it, and he said, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? But Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. This is God's word for us this morning. And what I want to do is spend some time, as I said, looking at these, particularly these first 11 verses, and this theme of betrayal that is present in here in such profound, painful ways. And yet what I want us to see is not only was Jesus betrayed by Judas and by those that were closest to him, but the reality of the situation, if we're going to be honest, is that he's betrayed by us as well. And that's not a comfortable thing to think about. That's not something that we readily want to admit. But I want to explore together why that's true, how it's clear here in the text. And then as we understand that, that we might actually have a greater appreciation for what Jesus has done. And so as we look at this, I want us to think about, like, where are we in this story? And I want to look for a moment then as well as how clear it is that God is sovereign over all that is taking place. So where are we in the story? How is God sovereign? And then there's some particular imagery. There's some symbolism that's taking place, things that for an original audience, I think they would have begun to connect dots and would have been like, oh my goodness, can you believe that this is happening? And so I want to look at that. And this is why these first 11 verses, they're just loaded with so much beauty and layers here. And so first, though, as we think about it, our place in this story 
we do need to wrestle with how it's not just Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders with their lanterns and their torches and their weaponry that comes to arrest Jesus, but how we as well contribute to that. But before getting into that, I also want us to think through this, because at one level, not only are we those that have betrayed Jesus, we know what it's like to be people that have been betrayed. Like if you've lived for more than five minutes, the reality is you're going to, if you haven't already, you will experience some relationship where you will feel a sense of betrayal. It could be a friend that turned their back on you, all right? That could be a recent thing. That could have been like, that might be 25, 30 years ago. You're thinking back to middle school and still like that person, they pop up on Facebook, like this person you might know. Like I hate that person. Maybe that's just my own issue, right? But like those sort of moments, that sense of betrayal, betrayal by a spouse, betrayal by, by a child, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody you were close with. I mean, just think about this for a moment, because what I want us to see is that there is, as the writer of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted Another way to say that is who has been tried, who's endured suffering as we are, yet without sin. That Jesus knows what it's like to deal with betrayal. Jesus knows what it's like when you deal with betrayal. That Jesus legitimately can say to you as you navigate the difficulty of relationships, I know how you feel. Like if I offer that to you, like you could be like, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But Jesus himself absolutely does. He's been betrayed at the highest level. And so we look at these words, I mean, look at it here again. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas, if you know the story, I mean, this is not just some random dude that happened to spend a few minutes with Jesus and then turned his back on him. Judas is one of the 12. Judas is one who had his feet washed by Jesus. Judas was one that was sent out on like missionary endeavors with Jesus. Judas is one who spent years with Jesus eating meals together, crying together, laughing together, hearing Jesus' jokes, which I'm just convinced that he was super funny, right? I mean, like all of those things. This was a close brother. The time that they had spent, the bonds that they had formed, this is no insignificant relationship. And it is this close friend, this brother, this one who's supposed to be one of Jesus' disciples with him to the end, betrays him, stabs him in the back, turns you know, his back on Jesus. And not only that, it tells us this, that he knew where Jesus was gonna be. Do you see that? Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, that there's this garden, because it says Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas knows Jesus well enough to know, I know where he's gonna be, because I've been there maybe hundreds of times before the period of a few years. He knew where Jesus was going to be. He knew how loaded with significance this place, this garden, this place was, this refuge where Jesus would get away to pray and to connect with his father and invite his disciples to pray. The amount of time that they had spent in this place. I mean, this betrayal goes deep. But you think about that for as you perhaps consider the ways that you've been betrayed or you've experienced that pain and even some places maybe that you, you shared, some of the memories come up, or maybe there's a particular location that you went to, or this home that you grew up in, or wherever it happened to be in that place, man, it's like, oh my goodness, like that just sort of triggers some things in you that just brings up so much pain. 
I mean, just a violation at its deepest level of not only relationship, but the significance of this, this place and the time that they had spent together. I mean, like, I don't have to have any other, like, verses to tell me when it tells me in Hebrews 4.15 that all of this, that Jesus was yet without sin, because here's the reality. Like, my heart struggles to forgive. My heart struggles to have righteous anger, but quickly defaults to an unrighteous anger. The fact that Jesus could be betrayed and yet be without sin, right? Like something happens to me and I'm like, oh, like welcome to murder town and I'm the mayor, right? That's how I feel. And maybe that got dark very quickly. I don't know. But like, that's just what wells up in me. And Jesus without sin, And not only that, like we're going to see the way he moves toward Judas, the way he protects and cares for his disciples. This is our high priest. And so I just want you to know, yes, we have some hard things that we need to look at, but also know this, like that Jesus knows your pain, your hurt, your sorrow, that betrayal, things that you've experienced or things that you will keep coming back to this. Like he knows what it's like. And it tells us this, so Judas then took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. What we need to see in this, these are not just a random details again about who accompanied Judas. This is a way of showcasing for us the problem of humanity and not just these people that are spoken of in this account, but you and me. Like, it's speaking here and it's saying, yep, there's Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, okay, but now you've got the religious leaders, the religious elite, you've got Jews, but you've also got Gentiles, you've got the soldiers, you've got the religious and the irreligious. This is a way of setting the scene to say, it's not just Judas that betrays Jesus, all right? The reality is all of humanity, the trajectory for every single one of us, apart from the grace of God, is betrayal and treason against God, our King. This is Genesis 3 on repeat. It's this loop we can't get out of. I'll take the fruit. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be God. I don't want to submit. And it's treason, it's betrayal at the highest level. The God who gave us everything, we turn our backs on. And so when this crew shows up with their weapons and with their torches and with their lanterns, it's not just they're coming down out of the city, crossing the valley, going up the hill to the Garden of Gethsemane, though that did historically happen. And I love all the details. Just one of the things as an aside, The names that are given, there's a fire, it's charcoal, it's cold. I mean, if you're making something up, you don't give this level of detail. Like This is written as actual history. And so that did historically happen. But friends, like we also need to see ourselves in that group. It's why the, the book of Romans, Paul would write this about our mindset. He says this, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is actually unable to do so. So left on our own, we are betrayers. There's one true king and we have turned our backs on him. We've committed treason. I mean, as painful as this would be to consider, can you and I get to a place that also says, I'm Judas? That's not just him that betrayed Jesus, but like the reason Jesus actually has to go to the cross is because I am part of this problem. That my mind, my heart, like left on its own, apart from the grace of God, has this hostility, has this contempt for God and his purposes. And I don't think we want to believe that. 
But the invitation here is to consider it for a moment, not to beat us down, but if we're going to know the gloriousness of the good news, like we got to contemplate for a minute the bad news. That it's not just Judas that rolls up and does this. Like, I'm a contributor. You're a contributor. Like, we put Jesus on the cross. We caused him to be right. Like, that's what we did. And yet, he keeps moving toward us. He willingly goes. There's a singer-songwriter that I uh, really like, this folk musician. I've probably seen him, I don't know, probably close to a dozen times in concert, a guy by the name of David Wilcox. I don't expect that you would necessarily know him, uh, but uh, this was years ago. I remember saving this part of this little interview. Um, he was talking about the songwriting process. A very gifted songwriter, prolific songwriter and musician, all, all of this, and he's describing the process a bit and an interaction that is fairly common between him and his wife. And so as I read this to you, his wife's name is Nance, so that's who it's referring to in this particular quote, all right? And so here's what, he, here's what he's saying. He's describing uh, this process, and he says this. He says, I'll have this song that's clever and blaming, and it's kind of saying, the problem with so-and-so people is blah, blah, blah. And then Nance, his wife, will say, hey, why don't you make it first person? And I'll say, well, Nance, it's not about me. It's about these other people. And she'll say, yeah, why don't you make it first person? And I'll sing it in first person and realize there's a part of me that hasn't learned the lesson that this song is teaching. Maybe I should write that song instead. Make it a little more real instead of just pretending I'm somehow out of the equation. Betrayed by us is something we need to consider it's first person. It's not just the soldiers. It's not just the religious elite. It's not just the disciple that is Judas. It's you and it's me. And yet, look at this. Look, look what God has said. Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, not morally neutral, not like, oh, I kind of like Jesus, I'm not quite sure. I mean, like, you're either with Jesus or you're against him. So while we were enemies, when that was our condition, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? It wasn't neutral. And Jesus pursued you and me, as he's done for all of humanity. When we were enemies, we had contempt. We had hatred in our heart toward the God of the universe committing treason, betraying him. And he's like, those are the people I'm coming for. Those that would be honest about their condition. That's the invitation. And so where are you in the story? Now, we also see so many aspects of God's sovereignty here. And we could spend a ton more time on this, but just for sake of time, let me highlight a few things. For one, it says, then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, nothing is catching him by surprise. And it's not just that he's aware that it's going to happen. It's that he has purposed for this to happen. This goes all the way back, fall in Genesis 3, reaching for the fruit, curses pronounced upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. And yet, Genesis 3.15, there's a promise that one day from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush this enemy of God and make a way for us to be restored, a way to get back to our original dwelling with God, enjoying his presence. So when Jesus knows, like he knows that this plan has been set in motion, he has purposed this, and even the pain and the betrayal, it is all under his sovereign control that God is working through it. And then he says this, 
I am he. So they ask, hey. He's like, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, I am he. And they stepped back and fell to the ground. We've been learning through the book of John. We prayed it together in the confession just a few minutes earlier. That throughout the book of John, there's these statements that Jesus makes to identify himself. That he's not just a man who's impressive, but he is God in the flesh. And the name for God, as we know, right? If we go back to Moses and the encounter with the Lord in the burning bush, and Moses says, well, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, hey, let me clear that up for you. I am. And it's like, okay, I still got some questions, but I am. Are you tell the people I am is sending you the name of God, the revered name of God. And then all throughout the book of John, Jesus shows up and is like, I'm the light of the world. I'm the, I'm the gate. I'm the shepherd. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm the way. I'm the truth. Like all of these things, all markers to say, I am. I am God in the flesh. And our translations that we read where it says, well, I am he, the he is not actually really there. He literally is telling them, oh, all right. They say, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus and others. And his response is, I am. They encounter the living God. That is why they step back and they fall to the ground. I don't know if it's falling to the ground in worship, but it is running up against the God-man Jesus. And the only response is to be floored. Like that's all they can actually do. They have run up against something that is so wholly different from them. And then Jesus asks them again because he's sovereign over this whole thing. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And yet in that, he says this. So if you're, if you're looking for me, let these men go. His care, his compassion, his mercy still for his disciples, knowing that they're going to bolt, they're going to flee, they're going to do stupid things, they're going to deny him. Like he knows all of that. And his concern is still for the other, for the neighbor, for his disciples. He's like, you're here for me. Let these men go. And then at the end, right, Peter, who just has to do something, right? He can't keep his mouth shut at certain points, has to act, right? Apparently, he's got a sword on him, like he's packing heat. Nobody knew it, right? So he gets, the, like, he gets this sword out and cuts off this man's ear. Now, we, think about it just for a moment. It wasn't like Peter was like, I'm going to teach this man a lesson. I'm going to take off the right ear. He'll know then. No, he was trying to kill him. He just missed, right? So apparently he wasn't very good with the sword, but it hit him in the head and cut off the ear. And if you go and read Luke's account, it tells us that Jesus took that cut off ear and healed the man. So even the enemies of God, those that are bent on destroying him, his care for, his compassion for. And Jesus then says to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup is the wrath of God. We have all betrayed God. We all deserve to be punished. And Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath and be punished in our place. Perhaps you're familiar with this. I think it's so helpful. We've got to keep revisiting this. But there's a, a hymn, more of a modern hymn, In Christ Alone. And perhaps you're aware of this and you've sung this. We've sung this many times here. That there's this line, I will not sing it. It would be horrible, but I will read it. That says, scorned by the ones that he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That that is what was taking place. 
there are denominational movements of a liberal theology that have actually rewritten that hymn to get rid of that idea. Because we don't like the idea of the wrath of God. No, God's loving and compassionate and all of that. And so the line has been changed that in that moment, the love of God was magnified. Now, was love taking place there on the cross? Yes, and yes, absolutely. But if there's no problem to fix, and it was just, well, why did Jesus go to the cross? To show that he loved me. That's insane. Jesus saying, no, I have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. There is an actual sin problem. So yes, there's love, but there's also justice. Justice needs to be paid. And Jesus says, I will go and do that. Like if I'm talking with my wife out there and you happen to overhear you know, something, a conversation, and I say to her, Heather, I just love you so much. And she's like, oh, that's really sweet. And then I run out into 436 and get hit by a car just to show her how much I love. Like you'd be like, what a moron. Like what was he doing? That makes no sense. And so if we just think about, well, Jesus, just to show us how much he loved us, he died. If there's no problem to solve, that's the stupidest thing ever. So it's not just the love of God magnified. No, no, it's the wrath of God was satisfied. You and I are on a pathway to hell without Jesus stepping in, dying the death that we deserve. He dies in our place. And this, his commentary on this, I love to just this reminder of how often then we can get caught up, I think, in even communicating to a, a watching world and our own troubles and lack of unity even in the church. And Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary on John says this. This is just a helpful image. He says, violence for one though only cuts off the ears physically and spiritually of Jesus' opponents. Violence, as he speaks about Peter's response, has never served Jesus' person or cause. And so Jesus says one more time, put your knife back in its place. Am I not supposed to drink the cup my father has given me? Does not the cause of Jesus and of his church that bears this cost go forward more by suffering than by fighting. And so as we tell this story, as we celebrate that Jesus has drank this cup, our call, again, is not to, to fight everybody like Peter did, but rather to say, no, no, look, let's, let's keep our ears attuned to this message. Let's be people that would even suffer well. That the prayer might be even as we experience betrayal and loss and hurt and all of that, that we might just rest in the grace of God. One last thing in here. So we see a sovereignty. There are some beautiful things happening here that I put before you that are just symbols. They're sort of signs. They're, they're meant to call our attention. It's not accidental, some of the details. It's specifically around the garden and the valley. And so it tells us he went out with disciples across the Kidron Valley, which we'll come back to in a moment, where there was a garden it is no accident that Jesus in his final hours is there in a garden. The trajectory, the storyline of the Bible, all right, it begins in a garden. It ends with a garden city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What we have here in Jesus is praying where he is arrested is in a garden. When Jesus, we'll look at in a couple weeks from now, after when he rises from the dead, all right, there's going to be the witnesses. And Mary is going to be like thinking Jesus was the gardener. It's all these clues that John is giving to us that the garden is so significant. What Adam, the first Adam, was unable to do, Jesus is here, the second Adam, on on this rescue mission. I mean, look at this, the way Kent Hughes put it in his commentary. The first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned, but in Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell, 
But in Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself. And in Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. But in Gethsemane, it was sheathed. Just another way, just saying, pay attention. God is on the move. There is a second Adam. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 5, 18 to 19. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Speaking of the first Adam, the first garden. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For justice through one man's disobedience, original Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If you are in Christ, you are in the second Adam, and he has imputed to you, he has given you his righteousness. So when the Father looks at you now, he sees the perfection of Jesus. We go from betrayers, treason committers, to actually clothed in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ. That's only because of what Christ has done, what he's getting ready to do on the cross. Now, this isn't a great picture, but there's also this reference to the the Kidron Valley, all right? And so I'll put this up here if you can kind of see from the temple down into the Kidron Valley, and then you kind of climbs back up again to the Mount of Olives. So this would be... Jesus, like walking these, these paths, walking across the, those dirt paths up that hill. Now, what's really interesting here at a couple levels, for one, it's the Passover time. So something new that I learned this week and preparing for this and studying for this is that when it tells us Jesus went across the Kidron Valley, at this particular time of the year, sometimes it was filled with water, all right? Sometimes it was just dry, but also... During this time of the year, when Passover is happening and the lambs are being slaughtered there in the temple, some estimates put it that there could have been close to a couple hundred thousand lambs that are being killed. That's a lot of death. That's a lot of guts. That's a lot of blood. Where does all of that go? And I realize this is sort of disgusting, right? But just bear with me. They literally had set drainage systems up that it would flow out of the temple and it would go down and it would empty into the Kidron Valley. And so scholars believe as well that as Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, there was this real reality of crossing over like what was now a river of blood. And then we begin to think about very early in the book of John, behold the Lamb of God who, what? who takes away the sins of the world, the once and for all sacrifice, that is Jesus. And so he and his disciples, symbolically, they're crossing over as the lambs are being slaughtered, and he knows, no, the ultimate lamb is going to give his life, and that'll be the bloodshed once and for all. But just that reminder there of what he's getting ready to do. There's also, in the Old Testament, there is a story of another king who is betrayed, It's the story of King David. And King David, too, it tells us in the book of 2 Samuel, I believe that, he crosses the Kidron Valley. And this time he crosses that valley because he's on the run from his flesh and blood, his own son Absalom, who is chasing after him, who has committed treason, who has betrayed his father and is seeking to kill him. And he crosses the Kidron Valley to get away. And now here we have the true and better king that is Jesus crossing the Kidron Valley, not to run away from his betrayers, but to go out and to meet them and to enact the purposes and plan of God to bring about redemption. He doesn't flee from this hour. He, in fact, pleads and he says to God, even in his struggle, like, may this cup pass from me, but then he says, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus gets up from his time out on the hillside with the disciples in this garden and says, who are you looking for? I am. 
He doesn't flee from his betrayers. He runs toward them. All of this is happening here. This is all the so many layers of things that are happening to tell us that Jesus is the true king that we need. Now, if we look for a moment, not only is this story telling us we're Jesus betrayed by us, he's also judged for us. He's judged in our place. And we'll look more detail at some of the trials next week. But as we read this, in 12 to 14, Jesus is arrested and he's taken to Annas. All right. And it gets kind of confusing because first they led him to Annas since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. There's a whole lot of things happening here. Just know this. Annas was like the head of the household, all right? Usually high priest was high priest for life, but after the Romans came in, they deposed him. And basically, it was just up to like whoever could kind of keep power. And so he had his four sons and a son-in-law that served in this role. Jewish history would say this man was so incredibly wealthy because of the extortion, the way that he would basically inflate the prices for sacrifices in the temple some 15x in order to say, no, you need a pure one. You can't get that unless you buy it here in the temple. I mean, so he's just got massive amounts of money, massive amounts of power and influence. He's basically controlling all of this and that Jesus has brought before this man. It's not a fair trial. Everything is going wrong. This is, this is not the way it's supposed to play out. And Jesus knows that. And so when he's asked a question, he's like, I, you're, you're asking me to incriminate myself. Like, that's actually not how this is supposed to play out. But Jesus says, well, you know, I never shied away from saying anything. I will just go and ask my disciples. I was never shy about sharing the truth. But functionally, he doesn't try and defend himself. He doesn't say, well, this is not a fair trial. He doesn't call out Annas. He just is there to take it, which was spoken of hundreds of years before by the prophet Isaiah. Speaking of Jesus, verses 7 to 8, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Jesus is putting himself in a place to be struck, to be substituted, to endure the wrath of God for you and for me. And he could have defended himself, and he could have called down angels, and he could have declared the whole thing, that this is a corrupt trial, which it was. But he knows what he's got to do. He'd been praying not too long before that for his disciples, and praying for you and me and for his church down through the ages that we would be unified around this message, that we would know that he has entered into the mess and the brokenness of our life to get us back. And he knows that we're gonna mess up and yet he's gonna continue to be faithful that we cannot exhaust the grace of God. And so I wanna close with this. Throughout this, right, we see the accounts of Peter that the servant girl at the door says, hey, were you with him? And he says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I'm not one of his disciples. And we know Jesus had told him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's like, no, 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 no way. And what I want us to see as we just kind of recount these passages is when we deny Jesus, the reality is he continues to be faithful to us. I can't wait till we get to the end of the book of John and we see in more detail what Jesus does to even restore Peter, his faithfulness to him. 
And so as we look at this, right, I mean, the tendency, I think, of the human heart, again, where we don't want to think of ourselves like Judas, I also want to look down my nose at Peter and be like, oh, come on, man, really? Like, this, these people just asked you if you were with them and you, were, you, just, you denied it, not once, not twice, but three times? But I think it's worth asking for a moment, like, does Peter get a bad rap? Because let's be honest, where are the other disciples? Have we thought about that, right? Like, at least he's there. He's making some effort. He's like, nobody going to do anything about this? I got a sword. I'll at least try and, you know, take somebody out. Like, that, that's sort of his mindset. Now, he's getting it wrong. But he is there, and he's passionately trying to follow Jesus, and yet he fails over and over and over again. And I believe you're here this morning because you want to figure out and you want to follow Jesus and figure out what that looks like. And yet you know your heart, you know your reality, and I know my heart and my reality. I want to passionately follow Jesus and I fail and I fail and I fail. And this account here is not meant to just be an encouragement just in sort of the camaraderie of like, oh yeah, Peter messed up and I messed up and like, you know, just kind of like, well, you know, at least there's company there. That is true. It's meant to point to a deeper reality, though, of God's commitment to us, that when we deny him, when we deny him by the reality of we don't trust the gospel, when we don't believe that life in Christ is enough, when we believe I gotta have this relationship or I gotta have this amount of money or this career or these grades or these people like me or whatever it happens to be, like when we pursue that fruit, so to speak, and we pluck that from the tree and say, I'm gonna find life and satisfaction doing what I want to do, and we deny the reality of life in Christ, he continues to pursue us. This is why Paul would write in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now it says if we deny him, he will also deny us, which we need to clarify for a moment. He's speaking of if you go to your grave saying, no, I reject the grace of God, I deny him, you literally will be told, okay, well, your will be done. Like you're gonna be separated from me. It is hell. But then it says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. You and I, like Peter, will struggle with our faith. We will believe the lies of the enemy. We will believe those other things that are gonna bring life and satisfaction. We will deny him by our words, our thoughts, and our deeds, and God will continue to be faithful to you. He can't but be faithful. He cannot deny himself. Jesus has paid for it all. He said it was finished, and it was. It wasn't, hey, I basically got you there, and as long as you're a morally decent person the rest of your days, like God will accept you. No, no, no. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, and Jesus pays for it all. And so when you lack faith like Peter, when you deny him by your thoughts, words, and deeds, know this, that God continues to be faithful to you. He continues to pursue you. And so the invitation then is, will you and I admit, this is our story. And if there should be any place that gives us a freedom to admit that, it's got to be the church. Let's quit with the pretending and the posturing and acting like we've got it all together. This is a place for broken, messed up people. This is for a group of people that say, I've betrayed Jesus like Judas. I've denied Jesus like Peter. And yet I know he continues to be faithful to me that we cannot exhaust the grace of God. Let me close with this quote. Christopher J.H. Wright in his book, To the Cross, says this in regards to this account, these denials of, of Peter. He says this, have you ever reflected on this odd paradox that's present, he says, in some Christian circles? 
it seems that in order to become a Christian, the first thing you have to do is admit that you failed. But somehow, once you have become a Christian, the last thing you're ever expected to do is to admit that you fail. It seems that in order to enter the church, you must accept that you're a sinner, but the only way of staying credible within the church is by pretending to be a success. Isn't there something wrong here? Aren't we missing something of the ongoing reality of grace in our lives, not just at the moment of coming to faith, but in every step of the journey that follows? So resounding, yes, there is something wrong. The more we understand the gospel, the more we understand what Jesus has done, the more we will freely admit that I am a betrayer, I have committed treason, I have denied Jesus And we will stand more and more in awe of the grace and the mercy of our God and our King. May we as a church be the place where we would freely admit, I messed up again. I'm I'm completely jacked up. I'm a complete idiot. Am I welcome here? Yes, you are, because that's all of our story. We are clinging to the grace of God. And so, church, I want to pray for us. And over the next few minutes as we partake in this communion meal, as we sing songs, maybe be thinking through this, what is it that the Lord is leading you to repent of? Ask the Holy Spirit to just help you remember the truth of the gospel. And we're going to rejoice together. So let me pray, and then I'll give us some instructions on how we will continue in the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy. Thank you that we cannot exhaust your grace that there is always more, that we can drink deeply. And God, I pray that this account that we have looked at, I pray that it wouldn't be in the abstract or just some sort of history lesson of something that took place a couple thousand years ago, but would we see it as the pivotal moment in human history of God, what you have done to get us back so we might be restored to your presence. And so, God, I pray that you would make us a people that readily admit our shortcomings, our denials, our sin, our treason. And in doing so, would we experience just the joy of forgiveness. So, Holy Spirit, lead us in repentance. Please apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts. We are in desperate need of the reminders that we belong to you, that we have your righteousness God, I pray for any here that, God, are striving, trying to keep up appearances, trying to pretend like they've got it all together. I pray that today would be the day that they surrender to you and that they would trust you. And so, God, I pray that you would be building your church, building us into the kinds of people that readily admit our brokenness and our weakness, and in doing so, experience the wholeness and the strength that is found only in Christ Jesus. And so, God, would you do this for your glory and our great joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.